Hey, thanks. Thanks. All right. Makes me feel a little better. <laughs> um, not that I need to. So uh, we are continuing in James uh, expositionally, and we are in the second half of chapter 2. Um, but let me, uh, let me first open with prayer. Gracious God, you know, there's, uh, it's, don't take this lightly to um, bring your words, your word of truth uh, to your people. So I stand here humbly, ask that your spirit teach, and that you would with real truths, that you would open ears to hear, that your word would be engrafted and planted to our hearts. Let us see that magnificence of your glory, the magnificence of Christ glorified. In his name, amen. I said we've been working through James, and so just a, just a brief review, um, since I'm you know fairly far apart uh, as far as messages go, <clears throat> being up here and <clears throat> excuse me, bringing the word. Um, so, so the majority that we've been through so far is you know what a a true faith or a, re, a genuine religion looks like. We see that it takes work, and especially that we've heard from Pastor Matt you know, in the past few weeks or so, or longer than Luke 14, the cost of discipleship. You know, I think we can see that it takes work. It takes, there is a cost. And the Christian life is marked with obedience to the word of truth. It's not only hearing the word, but doing it. And a true religion that we've seen so far you know, in James you know, he has, it has joy in trials, and it perseveres under trial. It asks for wisdom and does not doubt to receive that wisdom. It's quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Thanks. Puts aside filthiness and anger, or wickedness. Looks intently into the perfect law. Bridles the tongue, cares for orphans and widows, showing compassion, showing no partiality. So loving his neighbor as himself, being merciful to all. So what is the message now? Let's uh, look into our, the scriptures, uh, James 2, 14 through 26 is the text today. The James 2, if you're able to stand with me, please, we'll read or as we read <clears throat> James 2, 14-26, the Holy Scriptures say, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled, 
and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Maybe seated. So I come up here also realizing that I may be less mature in many areas of the doctrines of grace. And so um, I ask for your grace. But I'll also ask that uh, if I'm an heir, let me know. If, if there's questions, let me know. Um, you know, I'll not be defended. Please come to me. The last thing I'd ever want to do is speak in error up here. So that being said. So James is denying the ideas that, one, a saving faith can be apart from works. A saving faith can be apart from works. Again, denying these notions, denying these ideas. And two, that a mere knowledge of God can save. We deceive ourselves if we believe these myths. Just like he said back in one, or chapter 1, verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Is not by the demonstration of deeds, is it not by the demonstration of our deeds and our works that we see a regenerated heart? Is it not by our lips and behaviors that wisdom, which is pure, peaceable, and gentle, it's revealed? Yes, it is. But on the other hand, I just want to be careful here because we don't want to fall to the notion that your works or good deeds justify you. You're not declared righteous or just before God because of good deeds. It's only by Christ's imputed righteousness to us that God sees us as righteous. Look, this is the, this is the whole point of the gospel. You know, it's because of Christ crucified, that sins can be forgiven. We are declared just before the Almighty God, no longer strangers, wrath appeased, our sins wiped away, and reconciled to God only by Christ's righteousness. You see, when Adam sinned, this sin was imputed to all kind, to all mankind. Judgment arose from one man's transgression, resulting in condemnation. 
But God demonstrated his love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. By death and suffering of Christ for our sins, our sin was imputed to Christ. God sees our sin, your sin, as belonging to Christ. And Christ paid our penalty for it. Now Christ's righteousness, now Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And therefore God sees it as belonging to us. So again, it's not our own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness that is freely given to you, that saves you from the penalty of eternal death. It is Christ who substitutes himself in place of you so that God's wrath would fall on him rather than on sinful man. So just you know, stop and think about this. You know, judgment can only go two ways. You are guilty or not guilty. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, you are guilty. Romans 6.23 states, And the wages of that sin okay, is death. The punishment, the punishment is eternal death. So, picture with me you being in a courtroom, standing before the judge, knowing you are already guilty, and you know what the punishment is. You know, I don't know what, you know, if, if you can picture this, you know, we've seen, you know, back in the days of Judge Judy or uh, whatever is on nowadays, I don't know what, but... Um, I'm sure people have seen the courtroom. If not, maybe some of you have been there. I mean, you don't know my past. I've been there you know, a few times. but So I can really relate with this. Maybe you can. Anyway, picture yourself there. Okay, You're standing before the judge, knowing you're already guilty, and you know what the punishment is. As you stand there about to be judged, you get that fearful, scared feeling. Children or young people, or maybe even the adults, remember that feeling you get as... You've done wrong, you've, you've transgressed, you've sinned against your parents, you've disobeyed, and they found out. Okay? And before you're about to get punished, maybe by the rod, corrected, you have that gut feeling of fear. And I don't know how else to explain it, but you might be able to relate with that. Or maybe uh, if you've been pulled over speeding or something before. And obviously, you're pulled over, you know you're guilty, and the policeman's coming up to your window, and you have that fearful gut feeling, you know, because you've done wrong, and you're about to be judged and penalized. So, not to distract you with that, but again, back to the courtroom. You know you deserve nothing but condemnation, but before you are declared guilty, before the judge hammers down his gavel and declaring the penalty of death, a man stands and up and says, wait, wait, I will take his sins. I will take your sins. Declare him righteous. And you say, how can this, you know, how can this be? Who are you? And the man replies, I am Jesus, the son of living God. Through my obedience unto death on the cross and the shedding of my blood, I paid, I paid the penalty for your sins. With my blood, I clothe you with my righteousness. Do you believe this? Repent, therefore, and turn back. 
so that your sins may be wiped away. So with that, let us uh, turn to Romans 5. Together, you could read along as we're going to go through most of the chapter. Romans 5. Uh, we're looking at 1 and 2, and then uh, 6 through 19, somewhere in there. Uh, so if you don't hear my words, and may you hear them through the Holy Scriptures and by the Spirit and understand this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Moving to 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. I'm moving to 15 here. But the free gift is not like that transgression, like the transgression. For if by the transgression the one, the many, died, much more to the grace of God in the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. So again, we see death to all through one man coming through Adam. Okay, but all, the difference is all is saved by one man, Christ. So I think it was on 16. Uh, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on one hand, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience that many were made sinners, even though so through the, disobedi- or the, sorry, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. I get an amen on that. Amen. Amen. All right. So, 
Why so much emphasis on this? A right understanding of justification is absolutely crucial to the whole Christian faith. A true view of justification is the dividing line between the biblical gospel of salvation by faith alone and all other false gospels of salvation based on good works, in which people cannot be sure if they are in a state of grace where they experience God's complete acceptance and favor. So it's essential to the heart of the gospel to insist that God declares us to be just or righteous, not on the basis of our actual condition of righteousness or holiness, but rather on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness, again, which God thinks of belonging to us. I know that was long, but um, it seemed that this, that foundation needed to be laid as we get into faith and works uh, because all the errors and the false teachings out there of our righteousness based off of the good deeds that we do. So verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? You know, what use is a faith that does nothing? What's the profit, the advantage? We're saying, what use is it? The purpose of faith is to save, right? To unite us sinners to God through Christ. So look at James' question again. You know, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? His argument is that faith without works is useless and not a saving faith. Understand, though, he's not questioning, okay, he's not questioning or contradicting the doctrine by faith alone. This is where many get confused and say he's contradicting Paul, for example. As he does not say, you know, for example, if, if someone, he does not say if someone has faith, he says if someone claims to have faith, if someone says he has faith, if someone professes he has faith, it's referring to a specific kind of faith, if you can even call it that. The faith of a person who claims to believe in God but has no deeds, has no works. Hence, not being a saving faith. It has no profit. Uh, it's no, no use. It does not save the soul. A faith with no works is not a saving faith. A faith that evinces no fruit no works, no doing of the word, is indicative of an unregenerate heart. If God has indeed regenerated the heart or given new life, then there will be works. There will be obedience to his word. There will be light. Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So looking on at James' example he gives in verse 15 through 17 of faith without works. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, 
being by itself. Earlier in chapter 2, uh, six weeks ago, whenever it was, you know, verse 8 through 13, um, the first part of that it was about fulfilling the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And loving someone as yourself requires graces such as humility and mercy. And children, if you can remember, I asked you what uh, mercy means. One of you answered, um, you know, it's compassion. Another one said, it might not have been a child, but someone answered, uh, you know, it's not getting what you deserve. Both answers were correct. But now I want you to think about your faith. Does your faith have works? Are you showing compassion to others? Your brother or your sister? When someone is in need, are you like the good Samaritan that helps the wounded man, you know, even though he deserves nothing from you? Or are you like the Levite you know, and the priest that simply pass by on the other side? In verses 15 through 17, James paints the similar picture. Again, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, when one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary... For their body, what use is that? Here's an apparent void of life of the Spirit. It's devoid of mercy and compassion. It's clearly observing a brother or sister in need, brother and sister in Christ, in need, you know, without clothing or in need of daily food, for example, and making a choice to do nothing for them. It's not giving them what's necessary for the body. Instead, it's like you know, a well-wishing like he says, be, be warm, or go, go in peace, be warm and be filled. It's, a, it's just the well-wishing. It's talking. You know, really, it's a, this is a mockery to the fellow believer in need when we hear something like that. The absence of good works erodes the credibility of the claim to have faith. A true faith responds to a need to the extent that it is able so the true faith responds to the need to the extent that it is able. So how is your faith? Is it more than a mere claim or belief? In John 8.30, so many Jews came to believe him. Still again, however, the professed belief was not saving. He told the Jews who believed in him in verses 31 to 32, If you continue in my word... If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Continue in my word means there's obedience to God's word, which is being a doer of the word. This builds credibility of the claim to have faith. Moving to uh, verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So, uh, just separating this to two parts. Um, one, you have faith, and I have works. So, the one here, James, it just means to, de- to deny the notion that it's possible to have faith without works. He's denying the idea that faith and works are somehow separable. All right. And the second half is key to understanding James' point. 
Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Show me, James says, and I will show you. So one cannot show faith by any... Think about it. I mean, you can't... You don't see someone's faith in their heart. Okay? It's obviously revealed. It's shown to them by what they do. One cannot show faith by another means other than works. So again, faith and works, they cannot be separated. Jesus repeatedly warned against the separation of faith and works. Luke, uh, if you look at Luke 6, 46-49. Luke 6, 46-49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock, which a flood occurred, and the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house in the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of the house was great. So faith is shown by works. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. James challenges another false notion, that faith consists solely in believing. Or as Thomas Manton puts it, mere assent or agreement to the articles of religion does not imply true faith. Yes, You do well, as he says, you do well. It is commendable to believe the doctrine that God is one, which rejects polytheism of the Gentiles, affirms the belief that there are three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that these three are the one God. This article of faith includes everything related to God, as to God the Father, His being and perfections, So to Christ as God and the Son of God and the Messiah and to the Holy Spirit. And to believe all this, yes, it's right. It's good. It's commendable. But the demons also have the same assent of these articles of religion. They understand this. They believe in the one true God in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. But they fail with the next commandment. To love thy thy Lord with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy might, all thy strength. They, they know the truth about God and Christ and the Spirit, but hate it. There is only an intellectual acknowledgement and is devoid of any works out of the love for God. Hence, they shudder and shudder. Demons also believe in shudder because they know God the Father only as a judge. Not as a friend, but an enemy. And they know him, but cannot enjoy him. Think about the difference. They know him, but cannot enjoy him. There's only fear and dread. They shudder. There's no comfort. The comfort that we can have. But for a true believer, there's not only assent to the truth of the word, but a consent to take Christ. A true believing brings great comfort to a Christian. A true believing is a saving faith. 
So do not rest until you have a true believing. Do not rest until you have that sort of knowledge of God that gives comfort. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34, 8. And brethren, it's because of this erroneous and shallow teachings and misunderstandings of the doctrines of grace that many, many people have been coerced to place their faith and belief in Christ. If you haven't heard me yet, hear me now. Many people have been coerced to place their faith in a belief in Christ, to simply profess and say he has faith. To raise a hand, you've heard you know, Matt say this also before up here, to raise a hand, uh, you know, to walk an aisle, put a check mark in a box. Maybe you've been there, I know I have. You know, indicating, you know, or put the check mark in the box, you know, indicating you prayed the prayer. That, the prayer. You know, now I realize, if this is the first time you're hearing this, this might be confusing. Like, what do you mean, John? Okay, so let me keep your ears open and just hear, listen. Because this is the way, this is what I, the same thing I was taught. Okay, almost, well, majority of my life. So we're going to look um, at a set of scriptures, many scriptures, where this easy believism, okay, as it's been termed, uh, comes from. So Acts 16.31. Um, feel free to turn these. I might go through the kind of fast. Um, Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Romans 10.9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10.13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. John 3.16, very familiar, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, have everlasting life. So, when we look only at these verses, okay, it appears that a belief is all that's required for salvation, okay, a profession. But can we place confidence in this? Can you place confidence in this? Say, no, our our salvation cannot stand on the grounds of making a decision to believe. So, but what can we stand on? Let's continue on in John 3, starting at 17. So just past John 3, 16, again 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes, you see it again, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has already been judged because he has not believed in the name of the begotten, not, sorry, is not, uh, where are we at? Uh, in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil, okay, think about again the works and deeds and actions, okay, acts. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light 
so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So here we can see that belief or knowledge is required. But unlike the demons, there's also submission to the lordship of Christ. There is a love of his commands. Like verse 21 just said in this last part, he practices the truth that his deeds may be manifested. He practices the truth that his deeds may be clearly seen or shown. The works are shown. Again, let's not confuse. I laid the foundation of justification and uh, works, that whole, whole part here in the beginning, so you don't confuse works, again, as being justification for righteousness. Okay? So we're talking so much about works. It's only through Christ. Let's also look what Christ says uh, in Matthew seven twenty one to 23. Uh, maybe being his sternest warning. Matthew seven twenty one to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. First John 2, 3-11, John assures us, or here's our confidence in salvation. First John 2, 3-11. Actually, three through six. I think I cut it short. Anyway, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps my word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. In him the, tru- the, the, the love of God has truly been perfected. Okay, there's new life. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Then in 2 Peter 1, 3-11, here we see that you know, faith is more than a mere knowledge. 2 Peter 1, 3-11. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge. True knowledge. Important word there. Not just a mere belief or profession, but through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, this is how I read this, hopefully it's, it's correct, but you know, here in knowledge and in your knowledge, look what's after this. We have self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brother kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love from the knowledge. There's your true knowledge. That's a true belief. Let 
8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he, though who lacks these qualities, is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all all the more diligent to make certain about this calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the internal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So you can see the difference in two sets of scriptures. The one who just makes the profession, okay, just says, versus the, the true knowledge. Okay. I hope that makes sense. You know, the easy believism, it's a perverted gospel grace which leads one to a false salvation and can continue in sin. I mentioned already, we know, you know that a true faith in Christ has a high cost. It's not just a one simple profession of faith and then you live your life however you want. You know, not only does a true disciple of Christ not presumptuously continue in sin, but he dies to the things for which he once lived. He dies to self. God must be supreme in your life. There's no walking the fence for Christ and sharing your heart with the loves of the world. But a genuine, pure, and undefiled religion is marked with compassion. It is unstained by the world. There's a doing of the word, not thinking or talking about doing his will, which I've been plenty of guilty times of doing thinking or talking about it, but doing it, you know, a saving faith has works. A new heart, a regenerated heart, a new life will demonstrate saving faith. Okay, only six more verses. Just kidding. There's a second half, so. <laughs> uh, I didn't get through all this, so. Um, Let's uh, pray. Father in heaven, uh, again, I just ask that you help us see that faith is more than just a mere profession, saying that we know Christ. But a faith... A genuine religion has works. It has compassion, shows mercy. It is obedient to your word, loves your word. Lord, I pray um, that you would just uh, wean us from the things of this world the cares and, its, and the loves that we have of it grow our affections for you. We have greater convictions to uh, know you, to know your word, and to obey your word and to do your word. In Christ's name, amen.